feeding the soldiers of that post. And the entire post would come there. But if they couldn't get in there, then they could go to the various other chow halls because we always had all the chow halls running. And if we went to the field, we had chow being shipped out to us, hot chow. Sometimes we'd have to use MREs, which are, you know, very depressing. But at the end of the day, when we would complete our field exercise, we'd get a steak, we'd get a baked potato. It'd be hot. We could have some hot coffee. Because we were on, as they refer to it, as on the economy on Germany in, in Germany, in West Germany at the time, we would go to uh, one of the guest houses, or what you would call a pub, and, uh, well, we might come back with a libation or two just to celebrate the fact that we just simulated kicking the Soviets' collective butts. Chow is a very important thing, and you got to take care of your soldiers. you got to take care of soldiers. Well... The ones you have to take care of the, of the mostest are the junior enlisted. And we're talking about the E3 and below, E2, E1. Sometimes you'll actually get a soldier come from basic training in AIT as an E1. I never saw one. Most of them always had at least a stripe. <laughs> so, but these, these are the guys that make the least amount of money. So they have the fewest options when it comes to chow. Uh, and they get, they get a, they get a meal card. They get punched so that, you know, they can show that they're eating because it's all about uh, accountability. So they get they get, they get the meal card, and then they go eat their chow. But they have to do it in an amount of time. You know, it's not like when you go, go to lunch as a civilian and you come back 10 minutes late and everybody's like, well, hey, if you miss a formation, you, you have some problems. So they have two chow halls operating right now at Fort Hood, and I'm going to call it Fort Hood because I don't know why they call it. Fort Cavazos, whatever it is. Fort Hood was is a gigantic military post. You could take Greenville, South Carolina, and drop it in the middle of Fort Hood and still drive for an hour to get out of Fort Hood. It's huge. And uh, this is where you do a lot of training, a lot of a lot of bad weather training. And um, Fort, Fort Hood is larger, larger than Fort Bragg, which is no longer called Fort Bragg. But it's a pretty rough area out there. And even today, in the 21st century, even though they have shuttles and everything else, they don't have shuttles specifically designed to take soldiers to have their chow, right? It may be to go to this center or that center, but not to the chow halls because that's supposed to be a given. And what they've done is they have sent and deployed so many of the cooks that they don't have enough personnel to man the chow halls. Um, I got a question. I, I got a question. Who planned this one? Who's the S2 that planned this one? Now, I don't know what they call them now, but in, uh, in, in, in the olden times, in the 80s, we had, we had these planners on the battalion level, the brigade level, they would be the S2. And these would be the guys that would say, this is what we're going to do. The colonel would get out there and say, hey, here's the mission. The S2, which is normally a major field grade officer, he'd be out there, he'd be the one telling us how we were going to do this. And when if you're going to get out there and you're going to deploy people and you got people in garrison, guess what? you got to see to the people in garrison. And because, you know, when, when, when you're in the military, you're supposed to actually be apolitical despite what you see out of uh, various people in the Pentagon. Most NCOs can't really speak out, except they will sometimes under anonymity. And... Uh, 
One NCO told Military.com, for months, one dining facility was open. It was more than a 30-minute drive for my soldiers. All the soldiers were going to that one. It was unmanageable, unmanageable during the workday. You can't have your soldiers not getting fed. I mean, this is one of the very basic things when it comes to just life. You know, food, air, water, that kind of thing. It is very hard to fight in combat if you're going to get out there and nobody can feed you. Oh, I'm sorry, S3, S2 is Intel. That's, you're correct, I'm sorry. I got it wrong. It's one of the S's. There's a S1, 2, 3, 4. It's S3, my bad. Now, the official line is we don't have any cooks. They're on deployment. What kind of Mickey Mouse outfit is this? What's the base commanding general doing? Wouldn't you think that his aide would have pointed out, well, you know, sir, they normally have really good chow, except nobody's there. I'm being told on the text line, Fort Drum has the same problem. Fort, posts like Fort Hood and Fort Drum. Fort Drum has got to be hard duty because that's the mountain division. And I've trained with some of those soldiers out of West Germany at Bad Tolls, at the Special Forces Post. And uh, those guys, those guys were hardcore. I can only imagine what their day-to-day -day was like. Now, right now, they're trying to get uh, some through Fort Knox, through AIT, but a rotation to the National Training Center and support for a cadet training exercise at Fort Knox took many cooks off of Fort Hood. <laughs> and let me tell you something. How are we going to attract quality recruits when we can't feed them? So don't get out there and tell me the problem is me because I'm out there telling people you shouldn't join the army today. I didn't even know this was this way. I will say it now. If they can't feed you, you shouldn't go. I mean, there's already, oh, you know, the, the army food joke is absolutely a joke because I, I had some really good meals. And I mean, in the, in the field, a meal can make a difference in your t entire day. A good meal. And... You want to know why veterans are so disgusted with today's military? This would never have happened on my watch. My soldiers would have gotten fed. I would have gone to my sergeant and I would have said, you know what, I'm suspending training until every one of my people gets fed. Write the Article 15, I'll sign it. As long as I'm their supervisor, they're getting fed. Do we actually have a... Do we actually have NCOs out there like that today? Probably, to a certain degree, but... Uh, I don't know. You look at this. And you're like, gosh, gosh. Guess where? Uh, guess California's got a plan. They're gonna. They, they figured out how to stabilize their grid. <laughs> and it's a good plan. It's a really good plan. This is News Talk ninety eight nine W O R D. All right. I've been asked. I guess a couple of times. So I'm gonna. I'm, I will comment on this. No problem. No problem. No problem. GS Plumbing Talk Line is one 800 The Common Sense Retirement Planning Text Line is 71307. Streaming live, if I actually punch the buttons and let it happen, on the WORD Facebook page, if I would just unmute the mic. Hey, let's just punch that button. And the podcast is available on the free Odyssey app. Straight talk, lock and load, go get them. Okay. Let's take a clinical look at the presidential election. Okay, 
And this is this is observations based on logic. When Trump landed in Washington in 2016, he was surrounded by nobody. Everybody didn't like him. Nobody liked him at all. He had just done what nobody had ever done before. He didn't come through the political system. He didn't pay no dues. What he did was he spoke to issues, which is something politics have, politicians have gotten away with not actually addressing for years and years and years. Because we've been so, uh, you know, we've been so glued to the magic box and seeing Bill Crystal get up there and talk the talk and everything. And, you know, only now are we beginning to understand just exactly how uniparty some things can be. And Trump was facing the uniparty. Now, the Republicans had a chance. They had done all this stuff to look good uh, when Barack Obama was in place, right? And they had a they in in the two years that Trump had the House and the Senate, they could have done a lot of stuff, but they slow walked everything except judicial judicial appointments. Those actually did go through. Now, having said that, Trump, when Trump came in. After just having done the impossible, I mean, up to nine o'clock at that particular night on election night, I'm not even sure he thought he had a chance. But then when he started looking at things, uh, well, then he changed his mind. Um, when, When he won, he completely populated his cabinet with swamp creatures. <laughs> Cause he didn't know who else to pick. Cause he, he was, he was inexperienced at this. But my, he was a quick study. And his effectiveness, despite the fact that he had everybody against him, is astonishing. Which makes him exceptional. His focus, his focus sort of bothers me a little bit. His focus sort of bothers me a little bit. Because um, sometimes he seems to go off, off, uh, you know, off the line, off the beaten path. But I wonder if that's actually deliberate or if this is a there's a reason behind it or if he just can't control himself right because one thing he did was he would take twitter he used twitter to a very very high degree of proficiency by just driving everybody crazy he'd get out there and tweet something and everybody be looking at that going oh my god have you seen this oh 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 so he knows how to distract the left and just make them lose their mind and we did get to see the left for who they were the defaulting to to you know to violence when they don't get their way we get to see that too so we have we've been in this learning process we we had that the whole time trump was president we achieved we achieved energy independence we achieved more stability as far as foreign policy because trump would just get out there and just say i'll obliterate you he just bypassed all diplomatic stuff and just went out there and just laid it on the line and politicians don't know what that's like. Now, here's the thing. Trump derangement syndrome. There's a lot of people that will get out there and they'll tell you he's a this or that. You know, he's like he's a racist. But then you ask him, well, what is the racist stuff he's done? And they're like, well, it doesn't come to mind. But you know he is. Every time, I, I don't have to justify it. That's Trump derangement syndrome. And that lives in the heads of a lot of people. So in the general election, there's going to be, I mean, it will basically come down to, and uh, uh, when I'm sitting here thinking about who it would be if it isn't Biden, they don't have a very deep bench. 
at all. See, even the ones I don't like that are running for the Republican uh, Republican nomination would be better. Every one of them would be better than Biden. Now, most of them would not really be proactive. See, that's the thing. We need a proactive president. We need a president to push Congress. We need a president to go in and, and you know, reconstitute the alphabet agencies and get rid of all of these partisan bureaucrats and just put people in there that just got here. At the very least, that gives them it gives us a few years to try to figure out how to control this. And it's going to have to it's going to take a very proactive president to do it. While the other Republican nominees uh, would be out there, the only one I think that might actually stir the pot a little bit would be DeSantis. Now, Trump, on the other hand, Trump seems like he really wants to disrupt it because they all came after him. The knives came out when, you know, knives were out when Trump was in office. So he's he's coming in looking to make a difference in that particular part of our lives. So the question becomes, if he wins the nomination, can he win the general election? In the last run, in the last election with Biden, he got 75 million votes, which is more than Obama ever got. So, yes, they stole the election. They stole the election. There's no way no way, no mathematical way, no practical way that Biden got 81 million votes. Now the question is going to become, with all the vilification and all this that we've had throughout the United States, see here, we're not going to care. We're not going to care. Because we're going to vote for whoever the nominee is in South Carolina. So far as I know, at the moment, we have not gotten a crooked apparatus in place. In the swing states where they're going to concentrate, that would be the one I'd be concerned with, except we know that happened now. And the legislatures of those states know that happened now. We don't have a pandemic where everybody's afraid and they're going to mail in their vote. So the only thing that uh, I, I, I scratch my head at is this whole uh, sign the pledge thing for the Republican Party. I sort of get what it's saying, but at the same time, why would we tell the would-be leader of the free world, why, why, why do we have to tell all of them, that the, the ones that are vying for this position, you agree to do something? Shouldn't that be just part of it? And that's how they're qualifying to get in the debates. If they sign the pledge, they can be in the debate. Not if they, you know, not if they have enough fundraising, not if they're not if they have uh, enough operations on the ground in the various states, not if they are actually polling above a certain percent. If you just sign the pledge, you can be in the debate. And I understand why Trump doesn't want to debate because Trump's so far ahead of everybody. Why would he debate? That's you're actually trying to debate to gain points. Right. So all he could possibly do would be to lose points. Strategically thinking that would not be the thing to do. However, if he goes in there. And he debates, and he debates like Trump. He would tear him up. He would he would give them new rectal orifices doing that. All over the place, he would just rip them. Because he does not go with the party line narratives that are out there. We saw that the last time. The reason he got the nomination out of those 18 guys, or whatever, 8, 17, whatever it was, was because he stood alone, addressing issues that meant something to constituents. Can he do it again? I don't know. But it's possible. He has it. It just matters how he focuses and applies. So we have to watch. He should not get a coronation. 
And I'm not sure that he can't win the general election. I know there's a lot of things in play, but anyway, we'll go back to California next just because it's fun to go to California. California, here I come. This is News Talk 98.9 WORD. You know, sometimes I wish autocorrect. When I'm trying to reply to a text, if it looks like I'm misspelling it, that's because on the one time when I want autocorrect to work, it don't. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. The GS talking. Um, GS Plumbing Talk Line is 1-800-905-0989. The Common Sense Retirement Planning Text Line is 71307. The uh, streaming live on the WORD Facebook page and the podcast are available on the free Odyssey app. I'm just listening to the news about the suicide and the gun thing. I've told this story before, and I'm just going to tell it again because I get tired of this misinformation being put out. Um, I have dealt with two people that killed themselves in the past. They both shot themselves. The part of how they kill themselves is unimportant. Because right now, wherever you are, there is nothing around you that can cause you to be suicidal unless it is in your mind. There's a reason people commit suicide. One of the people that I know that committed suicide, his name is Tyson Bowers. I was filling in for Tara in January of 2018. I was, I was there for her for a week, and he called in every day because he was my first producer ever. He was the one that helped me stay in radio. He, he was the one that propped me up. He was the reason that I was not a burnt, you know, a, a bleached skeleton in a borrowed car between here and Columbia when I was on uh, 1230 AM WOIC. He kept me afloat. He was very much into talk radio, and if he knew, if he was here today, he'd be so happy. But... Some other things that he tried didn't work out. Uh, Tyson was, uh, I think his father gave him $2 million when he graduated from college. Now, he was older than I am. He was older than I am now when he, when, he, when he killed himself. And he called me one day, and he had been in a wreck. And he called me in the Tyson way, where he gets out there and says, hey, you want to buy a car? And he sends me a picture of this car that he just driven into a tree. This was his first attempt at killing himself. He drove into a tree. I've still got the picture of him in the hospital. And then he killed himself. Then he managed to kill himself and he shot himself and he killed himself. And I had a dream about that. And I had a, a, Tyson was in it and he was talking to me and he told me he was okay. And this bothered me a great deal. So I, I, I sought out this lady, Dr. Linda Lagerman. She is a clinical psychologist. She deals with a bunch of teenagers that come off of these psychotropic drugs and I asked her, because I didn't know who else to ask, what, what is it about suicide that is so problematic for me as somebody who knew someone who, had, who committed suicide? And she told me, she said, listen, when somebody commits suicide, they have done many things to try to overcome whatever it is that is in their mind that is tearing at them. And then when they decide to commit suicide, it's the first moment of peace they've had. They actually get to settle down for a moment and, and they, 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 they actually feel solace for the first time. They can actually breathe for the first time because now they've figured out a way because everything else they've tried has not worked out in their mind. Their perception is this is the only way and they've come up with this idea and now they, they know the outcome. 
So when someone becomes suicidal, this is what we're up against. We're trying to talk them out of the fact that this is the best thing for them. And uh, that's hard. And guns, I mean, we, Japan has more suicides than we do. And uh, most of them are hanging and, uh, you know, they even have a little special forest, the, the suicide forest they go to. And suicide is, uh, you know, it's all about your society, really. Tyson Fett, he, he met the, uh, the, the demographic of most people, the way most people, are, you know, middle-aged, Caucasian, in his 60s. He had been a success in various means and ways. He owned the home he lived in. And he lived in forest. He lived in Forest Acres and down and down in Columbia, where you know owning a house there—that's that's a you know he was a millionaire on paper. But he didn't achieve something that he thought he should have achieved. And his perception at that point was that he had failed, despite the fact that he had done what he did for me. I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here right now today if it weren't for him. The week after I filled in for for Tara was when he killed himself. He called in every day that week. And I miss him to this day. It's not about guns. It's a mental thing. And uh, you have to be, you know, I don't even know how you begin to become aware of that kind of thing. Because I try to exist in a very high state of awareness. I don't know how you pick up on that. Because with someone who do, does decide to commit suicide, they're happy. There, there may be, like in the military, they would say, well, if they start giving away all of their items and if they start saying it's been nice to know you and this kind of stuff. That's that's a thing. That is a that is a thing. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a sure sign. But what do you do? How, do? how do you watch somebody 24 hours a day and take them out of a situation where they can't find some way to kill themselves? Because this is what they now want. This is what they seek. So it's it's never about the tool. The tool is, uh, you know, I, I hear that kind of stuff, and it's so far off the beaten path. Right now, we have a large, large portion of children between the ages of 18 and 24 after the pandemic. They were feeling suicidal thoughts. And it's not because they had guns laying around. They're, the gun doesn't have the voices. That's not what causes people to kill themselves. They want to be successful when they do it. How do you, how do you fight that? I mean, th there's no answer to that question. I don't know the answer to that question. But I heard that in the news. And I, oh, the prevalence of guns, this, that, the other. Okay. You just, that, that's a swing and a miss. That's a swing and a miss. All right. We'll get, we'll, we'll definitely get on California this time just because the answer to the question is so hilarious. This is News Talk 98.9 WORD. I missed that. I was doing the air drum and I was one beat too fast. Oh, well. Shouldn't do things for the video stream. You should never do none of that stuff. That's that's just, you're just going to mess yourself up. <laughs> GS Plumbing Talk Line is one 800 The Common Sense Retirement Planning Text Line. 
7307. Streaming live on the WORD Facebook page and podcast is available on the free Odyssey app. In California, they're facing a problem. They have, uh, they have, they need to stabilize their power grid. So they've come up with a genius idea. First of all, what they did, um, this, this is one of the biggest, uh, distraction things or misdirection things I've ever seen in my life. So they, they've convinced a bunch of people that if they will buy an electric car, that's good for Gaia. So in California, a bunch of people have bought an electric car. Now, remember last year they told us that they would not, you shouldn't be charging your electric car at certain hours. Well, now what they're going to do to stabilize the grid is when you're plugged up into this system of these smart chargers, they're going to start sucking the juice out of your battery to stabilize the grid during the unstable periods. The Ford F-150 already allows for bi-directional charging. All of you driving the Ford F-150 Lightning, you're driving a big battery bank with a pickup truck bed and four tires. Now, this was supposed to be sold as a benefit to the owner as an independent generator for households during blackouts. Uh, PG&E wants to use it to commandeer all EV batteries and use their power to prevent the grid collapse. And we get this. It's been said before, California's power grid will have to expand in order to meet the demand for more energy. PG&E CEO Patricia Pop, is it Pop? It's got to be Pop has come up with an unconventional idea using electric electric cars to send excess power back to the grid to prevent blackouts. Lawmakers in Sacramento are helping to move things along. For example, Senate Bill 233 would make bidirectional charging mandatory for all new electric vehicles. Now the question is how quickly can that electrical connection be up and running in any ordinary home to make vehicle-to-grid a reality? Well, <laughs> anybody see a problem with this one? Um, well, first of all, the reason they're having this issue is, you know, they refuse to use fossil fuel. And it doesn't even have to be fossil fuel. They could use nuclear power. And they could use this as a, as a peaker station if they wanted to, if they didn't want to use it primarily. And... Uh, they're going to force Californians to transfer their vehicles to the grid rather than use gasoline for independent power, which once you get gas in your car, they cannot plug into you and actually suck that out of it unless they brought a piece of, you know, some garden hose and a, and a bucket. So that's not going to happen. This doesn't solve any of these problems. This is this is robbing Peter to pay Paul. It creates a kind of three-card money with the grid. You're sending the power to the vehicles, then you're pulling it back when the state decides to apply it elsewhere. This is an illusion of a solution. This is not a solution. Because there's no additional power. There's no additional power being created. They would simply confiscate the power for their own uses as they see fit. And by the way, this means you're paying for it and then they're taking it back. Right? You have a power bill coming, right? You have a power bill coming. Technically, the grid would operate more efficiently if it never charged the electric vehicles at all. 
because if you consider the inevitable power losses that would take place in regional bidirectional charging. This is the ultimate in redistribution because there's no real production coming out of it. You're actually paying for the power that you're getting and then they're taking it back from you. You bought $5 worth of power. We need $5 worth of power. Thanks. No, you don't get your money back. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for the free power. That's what they're doing. <laughs> I don't even know what kind of scheme this is. And what does this mean for car owners? Well, they say, PG&E says that cars are parked 95% of the time, a rationalization for energy seizure, which may be true, but is irrelevant because this is energy seizure. The issue for the car owners is having the car function the 5% of the time they need to travel, to work, schools, social functions, commerce. And what happens when they wake up in the morning to go to work to find out their car has been drained overnight to stabilize the grid? What happens when they all plug them in at the same time to get charged enough to go to work? Won't that destabilize the grid that we just suck them dry for to stabilize overnight? And this is not the only issue. Unlike gas tanks, which can last for decades, batteries have a, see, they're going to charge them and then have them discharged back. So that can only happen a finite amount of times. You know, a gas, a gas tank, it just, it just sits there, just holds in, it holds its integrity, holds the fuel. Batteries can only, they, they only can discharge charge so many times. Even Bloomberg got out there and uh, put some, they said utilities would need to offer drivers incentives such as paying them for the kilowatt hours they contribute. <laughs> but some EV owners have reservations about the potential impacts on the car battery's lifespan, which concerns linger about the installation adding up an estimated $3,700 to an EV cost, according to the Alliance for Automotive Innovation. Now, there's nothing wrong with owning an electric vehicle. That's what you want to do. But in California, this is not a choice. What they're doing now, they're going to actually just, they're going to have you pay for the energy and then seize it. And they're forcing their citizens into electric vehicles. This is a mandate. This isn't, this isn't them getting out there and opting, you know, I'd rather have a Tesla instead of a Porsche. Oh, no, you're going to have a Tesla, no doubt. I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's some funny stuff there. And they voted for it. That's the that's the that's the hardest part to fathom. Slavery. I'm getting you know. It's something to fight, but it is it's it's not being used as an actual issue. This is News Talk ninety eight nine W O R D, the Voice of the Carolinas. <laughs> 